Sounds like the children are being dismissed to the torture chambers. That's all right. They're going to learn the Bible or else around here, baby. (laughs) Not again this week. No. (laughs) Uh, I I think the dates on a couple things were off. Every time you saw August 29th, that should have been August 28th. So otherwise, you're going to show up here on Sunday thinking that you're passing out door hangers and helping with the election stuff happening. Not the case. (laughs) Uh, This is why we don't let the parents visit the children's ministry. We just prefer you not know what's really going on back there. (laughs) All right. Well, this morning... Open up to Psalm 50. I want to reread a verse with us. We are continuing our series on, ladies and gentlemen, introducing God and praying that God gives us eyes to see what we have perhaps become too familiar with. And you know what happens when you become too familiar with anything. You begin to no longer see it for all that's really there. And this will be our third week in a particular aspect of God and understanding his character. And we're looking at meeting the God who is love. And I felt a little bit of a reprieve from the fact that I'm taking the third week now to teach on just one aspect of a series that already has multiple parts to it. When I listened to a piece of a message by D.A. Carson who was doing something similar, teaching through aspects of who God is. And when he got to God is love, uh, he, he said, this is, this is going to be very hard to do in one week. He said, I probably need 10 weeks to do it. So if I do it in less than 10 weeks, I think I should get some kind of points for that. Okay? <laughs> so even though this is going much longer in this category. But one thing I want to reiterate, and I'm going to kind of try to get into our world here for a moment and be conversational with you in just a second. It matters to God immensely that all that who he is is made known to us. Right, so I don't want to just choose this aspect and say this aspect matters to God and the rest of them don't. God is, God is revealing himself to us. But I find when we walk through life and we're interacting with how things are going in our life, depending on how we're feeling depending on our frame of reference, depending on how things are going, depending on how we were raised, depending on our personality, we interact with the love of God based on all that, quite honestly, a lot more than we do based on all this. So this book comes along and tells us God loves us, and it comes along and tells us how he loves us, and then we sort of don't look at that. We look at our experience, our life, our ideas about life, how we were raised, our personality type, and then we look back in God and determine whether or not he loves us. And we do a huge disservice to God in that moment. And we don't experience the love of God. God wants us to experience his love. And so it's coming to us in multiple ways. And I I think part of what I felt the Lord wanting us to do in this aspect is to just broaden our ability to receive the love of God. I mean, we're not creating the love of God by teaching on this. The love of God is what it is, and it's coming our way. 
But, you know, if I'm facing this way looking for the love of God and it's coming at me this way and it's coming at me this way, I'm missing experiencing the love of God, even if it is coming into my life. So let me start off this morning going back to the umbrella that sits over this whole series, that God is holy. God is kadash. It's the Hebrew word that's used to describe this characteristic of God being God. And that word kadash, remember, it means God is other than us. He's, he's not living in our domain, being determined by or defined by us. God is holy. He's apart from us. He's unique and separate. And so when we come to the subject of God's love, his love is that way too. The love of God is a kadash love. It's a unique love. And remember this passage in Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent, the Lord says. You thought that I was one like yourself. You thought, this was your mistake, you thought that I was like you. Now that verse, if you have an ESV, there's a little footnote there that says, you thought that the I am was like you. The, the, the Hebrew language that's used here is a word hayah. It's Yahweh is contained in this word. It's the same thing God said to Moses when Moses asked God, you're sending me to Egypt. Who do I say has sent me? And God says, tell them I am hayah that I am. Hayah. That's who sent you. So in this statement here, God is saying, you thought that the I am was like you. Now, the I am, that phrase in God is a unique description of God because it, it declares his self-existence. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he has no connection to anything in his creation that caused him to be. I am, and I always have been. And it's a hard phrase for us to get our mind around because we're not like that which is important for us to now impose that understanding on love for a moment. All right, go back with me to R.C. Sproul's thought that we looked at a few weeks ago. He says, everything that we know of, everything, including the universe itself, had a beginning, which means it is contingent, derived from, it's dependent on something outside of itself to lend being to it. Except God. Now we'll come back to God in a moment. But we just learned something. By learning something about God, we're also learning something about ourselves. Unlike God, you and I are living this contingent life, a dependent life. You and I depend on things outside of ourselves for our existence. Right? What everybody took for granted when they walked into this room that the, was that there would be oxygen available to you in this room. Right? We don't walk around, you know, knocking on restaurants excuse me, before I come in. Is there oxygen in here? You know, we don't live our lives that way. But, you know, you think that way if I stuck your head underwater. Right? If you, if you go back to your childhood and you're horsing around in the pool, you're a kid, and somebody, somebody bigger than you who you don't trust, you know, clumsy, knuckleheadish individual, dunks you underwater. You know, you could probably hold your breath, you know, for at least a minute. You know, you can pull that off. But you get 10 seconds underneath the water, and what do you start doing? Clawing, scratching, freaking out, right? Because you know you are dependent on something that's above the surface. And if you keep me here, 
I'm going to go into a desperate, panicky kind of a mode. Right? And you understand, God, uh, God is never oxygen depleted. God's not like us. He, he doesn't depend on an aspect of his creation for himself. But you and I do. Not only physically, but relationally as well. We live in a, I think I put in your outline, a need-informed love. Our, our love, when we get into this category of love, our love is a need-informed love. We live on a daily basis incomplete feeling that there's something else we need in our life. Everybody, every one of us living life is in touch with that. On a daily basis, we get up with a physical sense of need, but an emotional, spiritual sense of need. I need something outside of me in my life because I'm a contingent being. And if I don't have what I need, eventually, depending on the category, eventually I begin to experience fear. Right? You, know, you stick your head underwater and get held down there for a few seconds. Immediately, fear launches in. But other things in your life that you reach out for, if you can't get them and you think you need them, you begin to experience fear. Right? Fear is part of our existence. Ed Welch wrote a great book called Running Scared. He says, listen to your fears and you hear them speak about things that have personal meaning to you. They appear to be attached to things we value. Right, well, how many of us recognize the amount of value we put on love? So I've been saying the last couple of weeks, I think we probably value love above anything else, which is what makes this subject so important to us because we put so much value on it because we do need it. It's a real need in our life. And so, you know, whatever it is, whether you're, whether you're into materialism and trying to, to get goods, I bet if you kind of just pulled on that string and found out where it goes, I bet you'd find out that your materialism leads to people. You, you want certain people in your life. But you just don't want them in your life sitting in the bleachers, unaffected, and they don't really care about you. You want them to love you. You want things that love brings into your life. Right, um, we want to feel significant. And I don't just mean like naming the headlights significant. We just want to know that, that my life matters to somebody else. It's not just enough for me to be in this room with you today. You know, I'm not alone right now. There's a lot of people in here. But if I don't matter to you, then I, I, I kind of can't live with that correctly. We want people in our life that we know we matter to them. We belong to them. We're accepted by them. We can put up with a lot of people not liking us and hating us and rejecting us as long as we've got a sufficient amount of people who do accept us and who do want us in their life. See, we, we, we need that dimension in our life, right? So every one of us is on the same page in that category. Now, that opens up an issue because if in me is this need to be loved, then immediately in me also now is a motivation for a lot of what I do. A lot of what I do. Right? Whether it's trying to be accepted because I fit into a crowd and so I dress a certain way, act a certain way, spend my money a certain way. Or if it's my own actions of love towards you. 
Right? Remember, we're, we're polluted creatures. So on our best day and our best efforts, our actions are polluted. So when I go to love you, I've got this pollutive motive going on. And here's the reality. When I go to love you, part of me is loving you out of a need to be loved so that I want my love for you to generate your love for me. It's kind of like what I call an investment program. I'm going to invest in you, but I want interest in return. I'm going to put my love into your life, but something in me wants to get a return from that. I want you to love me back. I want you to accept me. Now listen, don't, didn't this, we get our nose out of joint over this, right? When we start loving people, we start developing expectations for them. Right? They, they, they need to do something in return for this. Now it makes sense because we're a need-dominated people. But God is not like that. So when we start talking about the love of God, we're going to need to be very careful that we're not imposing on God our ideas of love that come from our makeup. God's not like us. right? So what we end up with is how God can be different than us in the category of love. How can it be that God can love us in a way that we don't quite understand love? How can God interact with our lives in a way that's unique to his way of loving and not just a mimicking of our way of loving? Well, listen, I'll put these bunch of cute little quote things in your outline because I, I want to be very careful to get us to think together for a moment. So this is our conversation that we're having. First thought here. When we love, our actions of love are polluted by our need to be loved. So quite often, loving someone else is about some attempt at getting something for ourselves. Right? It would just be very helpful if we just would humble ourselves and admit that. But it is a reality. Right? I'd love to say that my love is an unselfish love. Uh, you know, when, I, when this became most clear to me, uh, it was in my 20s, mid-20s, I guess. Uh, Gina and I had been dating for, I guess, almost a couple of years at that point. And she was a little slow to discern the will of God in her life. <laughs> and, you know, began to feel compelled in a different direction away from me. Can you imagine? And, uh, <laughs> and in that moment, we're, we're, during that season... I got introduced to something that was, it was painful, but I am so grateful for this season in my life. Because see, in that moment, I, I was convinced that I loved this girl. I was in love with her and I loved her in all the terms of love that you could use. But it was appearing as though there wasn't a future for us. She was headed in a different direction and, you know, I'm not thinking the will of God in this. I'm just thinking she's got issues, right? I mean, because here, in reality, you know, all you couples that wander through discovering the will of God, it's not like, you know, you enter into this courtship and you walk. And, you know, what we all will counsel you guys as you come to us as pastors, we're going to counsel you how to walk through this courtship that, that it's appropriate and important at a certain point that you are simply discerning the will of God. That's what you're after. Listen, it's not as though when you discover the will of God, it comes in the mail and a notice shows up in a bright green envelope that you know uniquely is, 
it's God's will. And you, and you open it up and you unravel it. I can't read it. You read it. You know, it's not going to work out. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not how you discover God's will, right? Nobody's gotten the notice like that. You discover it through ways that look like she ain't interested in me. <laughs> that, that's that's kind of how I'm discovering this thing. There's something else in her life that she'd rather have that than me, right? So I'm discovering this thing. And in this moment, I'm not liking the way that feels. And so, you know, I'm tempted as to what I think about her in this moment. But here's where I'm, I'm hooked on the horns of a dilemma, and God begins to open my eyes to this as I begin to sort of want to be defensive and attacking and God is taking me back to, whoa, whoa, Keith, just, just days earlier, you said you loved her. What did you mean by that? Did, did you mean you loved her the way I love? Is that what you meant? And, I'm, of course, I'm just sitting down in this moment, so to speak, and listening and wondering where is this conversation going with God. And he begins to show me, you know, Keith, your, your love for her was a very territorial love. You had a love for her as long as she was within one foot of you, and her life was about you. But if her life was not about you, you still love her in a godly way? See, because it looked like the territory that she was going to live her life toward was not towards me. And I begin to have to wrestle through these feelings that were in my heart, and God really did a number on me. And I began to pray differently for her. I begin to recognize, you know what, love, God, I don't, I don't want to have a corrupt, me-oriented love towards her. I want to have your kind of love for her. So, God, this is what I begin to pray. God, if your will for her that would be the best for her would put her in a marriage with someone else, well, then, God, that's what I want for her. God, I want you to bless her with a man that's going to care for her and lead her. And, and be a blessing to her all the days of her life. God, if your will for her takes her to the other end of the world, and then she's no longer a part of my life, but that's what you want for her, and that's a good thing for her, well, then, God, that's what I want for her too. And I began to pray kingdom-minded, God-minded prayers for her rather than me-minded, I want, I want her at all costs, minded prayers. See, I was being introduced that, Keith, your love for her is connected for your desire to be loved by her. That's what you're after, isn't it? You love her as long as she'll be a significant person in your life. You love her as long as she'll orient her life around your territory and make you a person that she accepts and loves and aims her life at. But do you love her if you're not going to be in that category for her? Now, I'm not talking romantic love here. You understand? I'm talking godly love. Listen, this is, this is not a new thought. If you guys have been to Pivot Retreat years ago, you know, I probably shared some of these things before. But this is what I observe, and this is a confusing thing to me. I think it needs to be fixed. You get a couple who tries to discern the will of God, and they start walking through a courtship. There's meetings, there's relationship, and they're dealing with things, and, and emotions are being formed. And they begin to maybe say that they love each other. And then somewhere in that, maybe into engagement, somewhere in there, this thing, I don't want to say it goes south. I just want to say it, it changes for them. And, and here's, what, here's what will happen too often. 
is this relationship was one of total dedication, total enamoring. I'm all over thinking about you night and day. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in your life. I want God's best. I'm praying big prayers for you. And then all of a sudden, pathways part, and now I'm gossiping about you. I'm against you. I'm highlighting all the things that, you know, and you always. And, and you know what? I don't even know. I, I definitely can't stay in the same covenant group with you. I don't even know if I can stay in the same church. All right, help me out here. What just happened? Can I tell you what just happened? You just discovered how selfish your love was. How territorial your love was. I'm greatly inclined towards you. I want to bless you. I think wonderful thoughts about you. you. You exist in my life in the category of favor as long as you're aimed at me, as long as I can extract from you what I'm after. But the day it looks like I can't extract that from you, now all that changes. And I, and I no longer want to bless you and care about God's good in your life. I'm hostile towards you now. Do you understand? This is how we love because we're damaged goods. We're a little bit too much sometimes trying to fix the need to be loved by the way in which we love. And that's what generates that. Now, now the great news here is that God is not like us. God doesn't come to the party with a need for oxygen. He doesn't come to a relationship with you with a need to be loved by you, right? Look at this next thought in your outline. <clears throat> by contrast, God doesn't come to us in a panic to be loved. He doesn't invest his love in us with a need that's seeking to be met. His love is kadash. It is not like the tainted love of man. As a result, God can walk in faithfulness in his love because his passion, listen, is to express his love, not extract our love. And you see this all over the Bible. It's why God can love his enemies. It's why God can love those who are unlovely. It's why God can never choose Abraham or Israel or David. Because God's passion is to express his love, not this need to extract love from us. And the moment we stop loving him, he will change now. Well, that's how people are. But that's not how God is. And we have to be very careful we don't impose this on God. Now, let me go into a category here for a moment of why this is important, why it's relevant. It's very theological, actually. I know I haven't sounded like I'm talking theology, but I am. This is very relevant to our, our tendency to, quote, work our way back into the good graces of God, which is where a lot of us live. See, now let me just link it real quick here before I kind of explore a thought on the side. If I mess up a relationship with a person and see that I'm loving that person, but I'm also trying to extract something from them, right? Well, I know how the game is played because I'm playing it. They're doing the same thing. And I just screwed all that up. I just turned the extraction off and they're not getting anything loving from me. Well, if they don't get what they want, they might take their love and go somewhere else, right? So now i got to fix that, you see. i got to work my way back into their good graces. i got to perform. i got to show that, no, no, 
you can still get from me what you're after. I'll do this, and I'll do this, and I'll do this. Right? This is the basis sometimes for why we perform for one another, but we, then we think that God is like us. So therefore, when we do something that God doesn't like, now we've got to do that for God. Right, let, me, let me back our way into that thought. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Very grateful for we We spend part of our staff meeting discussing, um, discussing the word that's preached every Sunday, reviewing that and, and bringing thoughts. You know, not, not all of us see things. You know, we see sort of like diamond facets. We'll look at a subject from different angles and Sometimes one of the guys is looking at an angle this way, and the other one's looking this way. One's looking at the top and the bottom. And just listening sometimes is just very helpful. So I'm grateful for the guys. They kind of stirred up some of these thoughts uh, for me to try and make clear for us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All right, now this verse is introducing us to this sense that something's happened. God is relating to us, and we're relating to him. Now, something's happened in, this, in our behavior, our activity, that falls into a category that this verse calls grieving God. So God is now grieved by something that we've done. Okay, now, how does that kind of make you feel? And where I'm going with this, I'll let you know from the beginning. If you begin to let God be too much like a man, you impose that on him. If he starts feeling grieved, well, then that means he's, he's not pleased with what he's extracting from my life. And if he's like one of us, then he might just pick his love up and go somewhere else. That's what men do. So if we sense God's grieved, that'll send us into a panic because maybe that means God's on his way out. But watch this verse here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All right, now I know that's big biblical language here. Back up to Ephesians 1 and it'll help clarify it a little bit. Verse 13, the sealing dynamic. Remember a seal in the days of Scripture? Uh, a signet ring was like a signature seal. You'd, you'd drop the wax in and you'd press this in. It was, like, it was like signing the deal, if you will. So if I put my seal on this thing, it's a done deal. So God is saying you were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So the day of redemption is coming. It's a done deal. Okay, And you back up in Ephesians 1, you find in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is a great image, and I'm so tempted to run off on this, but I have to make, at least make this point. The Holy Spirit is the, 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 the terminology there in the Greek is the erebon. He's the down payment. Right, now, here's how this works. Let's just say you're, you're a piece of land, right? And you go put a down payment on a piece of land. You know, $5,000. You're going to buy that house. $10,000. Somewhere along the way, you find a house you like better. What do you do with that $10,000? Well, 
Well, depending on how much you like the other house, you might just walk away from it if you can afford to do that, right? Because it's, it's money. Well, notice what God puts down as a down payment. Himself. Do you ever foresee God walking away? Is that even possible? God puts the Holy Spirit in us. That's the down payment God's saying, listen, I'm going to come back and complete this deal. I'm going to take you into eternity with me. But for now, you're going to walk out temporarily this life on earth. But, but I'm coming back to finish the deal off. I'm, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit as a down payment. I'll be back. How many of you know God's going to be back? We're not, he's not going to be in eternity going, anybody seen the Holy Spirit? I mean, and the son's going to step forward and go, oh, you know, Father, we walked away from that deal. Remember, it was a bad deal. It really, you know, we thought the house was cute, and then we got in it, and it's got termites. Uh, we just walked away from the Holy Spirit. He's stuck in a bunch of lost people. You know, uh, no. God's never walking away from this deal. And we pick this thought up again when he references this, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So God is set on the fact that you and I are going to belong to him forever, and that's a signed and sealed deal, and nothing can change that. Embrace that and receive it. But then this verse turns around and says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now what I want to get us to do here is I want to get us to embrace something that's very biblical. You can grieve God. I think this needs to be very clarified because I, I, it's almost as though we develop this defense mechanism. I think it's because we impose man-like love on God. Because if God is grieved and he's not pleased, well, then he might pick up his love and go somewhere else and he won't love me. Well, that's what man might do to you. But that is not how God loves. His love is a kadash love. He is quite capable in his love of being grieved by you and not altering his love for you at all. He will complete this deal. He will bring you into his promises fully, even though along the way he does not like what you're doing. All right, let me look at the context here. Verse 25. If we're having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Right, I mean, you can begin to extrapolate this verse into the surroundings. It grieves the Spirit of God when you and I are false to one another. Be angry, verse 26, and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. You know, if you're, if you're doing these things, it's grieving the Holy Spirit. Let the thief no longer steal. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So, I mean, we're not talking about murdering rapists here. About people who don't speak correctly to one another grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? This word grief, it, 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 it doesn't have an easy saying to it. It's the Greek word lupeo. It means to grieve, to afflict with sorrow. It's, it's used, the concept is used in the New Testament in Greek, but in the language of the Old Testament, it's used as well. Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved. Him, God's chosen people, people that God chose to enter covenant with, grieved him in the desert. And again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Right? That word grieved in Hebrew, it's a verb meaning to hurt, to pain, to grieve. 
The word pain there in that passage is a verb meaning to vex, to cause pain. It refers to causing another person discomfort or vexation because of one's behavior or attitude. Now, listen, if you vex another person long enough and effectively enough, eventually they will do what to you? Withdraw their love. You live long enough to see that in people's lives? People who were in love with one another begin to sin against one another. Sin and sin and sin and time and sin and time and sin. And next thing you know, you can't find love in that relationship anymore. And if we're not careful, we start thinking God is that way. So that when we pain him, eventually he will withdraw from us. Let me tell you what part of the remedy is, and it's not a good remedy, is to do away with the idea that God could be pained by us then. See, I think we impose that idea on God, not from the Bible, but from the way in which we're afraid of where this is going. If God is displeased with me, then he's going to stop loving me. And, I, and that can't be true. Is that true? No, that can't be true. So the Bible teaches that he will love me. So it, uh, and so we tamper with the Bible. Listen, the Bible says God's grieved. He's displeased. And all these words, grief, pain, express some sense of God's displeasure. He doesn't like what we're doing. Right? Warning. Read this with me. In this moment, you may be tempted to treat God like he's a man. When we fail one another, we've robbed someone else of their desired return on their investment. And if they don't perceive there's something in this for them that they like, then they will stop loving us. So we go to work trying to strengthen our our bond rating. You know what that is? We try to convince them that we're a good investment. Your bond rating is, you know, how how much of a return people can expect to get on their investment. If you've got a low bond rating, (laughs) it's a risky thing. You know, you're a junk bond. Don't know if that's, you know, if I love on this person, I'm not getting anything back. This person is so into themselves. Right? So when we displease God in our life, the temptation is to, to work our bond rating back up with God. I gotta do some things now. I gotta fix that. I gotta do this. Now. God, just give me one more chance. God, you know that I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna do this and this and this, and I'm gonna stop doing that. I'm gonna repent of this. Repentance, that's biblical. I'm gonna no longer do that, God. I'm gonna begin to serve this way, and, and I'll use all the bur- uh, biblical lingo, and I'll read the Bible more. God, God, you can get from me what you're after. That's what we're saying. Guess what? God's not in this thing to extract love from you because he needs your love. God is not in a panic. God is the self-existent one. I am that I am. And I have loved in the Trinity from eternity past. And my son's love for me and mine for him and the Spirit's love is not in any way deficient. I don't come to you because I need to extract love from you. I come to you because I have a passion to express love to you. I am overflowing in love. I'm not a vacuum. So you see, God is not like man. And, and we need to be careful that we don't ascribe to God man-like qualities that make us actually uncomfortable with or even do away with some of what the Bible teaches. You know, it's, it sounds real simple just to say, well, listen, you know, Keith, I don't know. That just sounds all complicated. All I know is God just loves me and accepts me the way I am. Okay, that's all I know. 
really? It is so much more than that. that, that you know, what do you mean by that statement when you say that? I just know God loves me and accepts me the way I am. Does that mean that God just comes to you and then he turns his back on your life? He doesn't pay attention to anything that's going on because he, he really doesn't have an agenda at all. He just loves you and accepts you just the way you are. And so he's not noticing what's going wrong in your life. He's not noticing whether you're in agreement with him or not. He's just kind of indifferent, dispassionate towards what you're doing and how you're living your life. Is that how you think of God? Well, I just know he loves me and, and, and he accepts me. Uh, well, you know, it's, 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 there's a little bit more to it than that. And, and you're confusing a couple of categories here that, that need to be carefully not confused. Right, let me go back into David's life here because there's an aspect of David receiving the love of God that needs to have some of this understanding. And listen, I'm taking some time in this because this is my concern. You know, sometimes you preach through a message and you focus on, and you have to do this because you can't preach everything every Sunday. So you focus on this dimension of God's love. Two weeks from now, you're reading a passage and you come across one of these God is grieved passages. And you're kind of, wait a minute. Wow. I thought God loved me. So, I mean, I thought, you know, like, God, if he loves me, he's, like, in love with me and stuff, and he's, he's, he's pleased. He's pleased with me. How could God be displeased with me? I, I really can't mean what that means. And, uh, well, no, I don't want you to be undone. The Bible says both of those things, and they get along quite well with the Kadash God. They just don't get along with us because if you give me reason to not love you, I will probably take you up on it. God is not that way, right? So we go to David's life, turn to Psalm 38. David experiences a unique, well, not unique, a common expression of the love of God, right? This was the aspects. We've gone through different aspects of David experiencing God's love. Today I want to deal with David experiencing the corrective and chastening love of God, Meet the God who loves David, who loves us through correcting and chastening him, but, but never rejecting him. Right? And you have to be able to see that these things coexist together. Listen to Psalm 38. This is one of David's psalms of great repentance. It's not clarified as to where we are in, in David's life. But David had issues, and so this could be a culmination of what's come out of a number of issues. Verse 1, oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan. Because of the tumult of my heart. 
Now, remember who we are listening to right here. Right? Can you go back a couple of weeks? 2 Samuel chapter 7. God comes. Remember, David's made this great offer to God. He's going to build God a house. God steps back and says, no, no, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, dude. I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. God says, basically, I've carved my intentions, and they cannot change towards you. All right, so God has declared his covenant love to David, to the man who's writing this psalm. And God has interacted with his life in a way that feels like arrows and weight. And I can't lift my head and my body groans. And and people are looking on in my life and they stand aloof. My life looks a mess. And he, he knows God is doing this to me. I thought God told David that his hesed, his covenant love, would never depart from him. You remember God saying that in 2 Samuel 7? So what I have to understand here is whatever David's experience is here, it is not apart from God's love. God's love continues in this man's life. But if you ask David in this moment, David, you feeling, feeling the love? <laughs> David ain't feeling the love. As a matter of fact, you look at the end of the verse, end of the psalm, verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Okay, now remember, the psalms are dealing with this man. He's interacting with life. He's, he's not trying, he's not Paul writing an epistle. He's not trying to write some clarifying, exact, precise doctrinal statement. Because God said, My love will never depart from you, David. And David in this moment feels like it's gone or it's on its way about. He thinks he can see the back of God. Do not forsake me, O Lord. Oh, my God, be not far from me. Why is he saying that? Because God feels like he's gone. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. And interesting how David calls on the very one who he feels is doing this to him. Right? Alec Motier, I don't have this quote for you guys. He says, when the Lord is offended and his anger and wrath loom and his arrows begin to fly, it is to the same Lord that we appeal for his presence, nearness, help, and salvation. Now listen, only the Lord's favor can deliver us from the Lord's disfavor. And do you... You and I have a hard time with that. How can I be favorable towards you and disfavorable towards you all at the same time? Right? Well, God is kadash. So I don't need to say, well, wait a minute. You know, grace means unmerited favor. Okay, so, so God can't be disfavorable towards me because I'm under grace. Uh, okay, let's see if we can explore this thought a little bit further. What's happening in his life? David is experiencing the chastening hand of God. The discipline of God is occurring in David's life. Now, why does God discipline us? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he loves receives. 
So if you are loved by God and received by God, right? And now we're all after this. We want to be loved and accepted by God. You sure you want that? Because you didn't read the fine print. Right now, I, I want to be loved and accepted by God. But you see, I've, I'm 46 years old. I came to Christ when I was a teenager. As a teenager, I wanted to be loved and accepted by God. I was not thinking about this passage. <laughs> I thought loved and accepted meant, you know, I might, I might get to drive early. I might get my own car sooner. You know, I'm loved by God. Look at what's happening in my life. I'm loved by God. Well, and that's good. God does a lot of those things. But the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastises every son that he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his kadash, his holiness, his divine nature. Right? Do you remember I, I said last week, God loves you with an agenda. This is why that, well, God loves me and accepts me. Okay, accept is not a good word for you to use in that because it, it makes you feel like the way in which you are is cool. Listen, the way in which you are is not in the way at all of God coming to you and justifying you and making you his own. The way in which you are, it's not a problem for that. But when God starts loving on you, he has an agenda. And so that love's going to feel like an elbow and a nudge and a collar. And a, don't do that. And walk this way. Hey, I got this for you. And a shaping and a molding and pressure. And what David's doing in Psalm 38, that's what it's going to start feeling like. Now, if you're not careful theologically, you're going to let those feelings run into the category of whether God accepts you. You understand what I'm saying? So you start feeling nudged by God. God is displeased. Your actions are grieving God. God is responding. God is bringing activity into your life. And you start feeling like, well, then, well, does God accept me and love me unconditionally? You understand how these words get really sloppy? Because God's love for you contains discipline and shaping. That's how he expresses his love. One of the ways he expresses his love to you is to care for you and to conform you to his image. What a blessing that is that God wants to do that in our lives. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. That's kind of all we're in touch with in Psalm 38. Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, let me back up into those two words for a second. Discipline and reproved. Discipline and reproof in this passage are expressions of love. Let's put them in the list with other expressions of love. Encouragement is an expression of love, right? How many of you guys have got a, an uncle or an aunt who's in your life? And, you know, when they interact with your life, they immediately take up the things that you're successful at. And they care about those things, and they comment about those things, and they're all over those things, and they're highlighting those things. And, you know, when you're young, you're around that. You just want to be around that guy. 
right? He's just a huge encouragement because he loves you. And then you go home and you wonder whether mom and dad love you or not. Because they criticize something that you've done and they correct this thing here and they get up in your business about something, right? Both of those are love. Uncle Fred, kind of not called to the love of discipline. So he just plays his role. You know, your grandparents, right? God bless you guys, your grandparents. When my kids need patience, I'm going to send them to you. Because you got this anointing for patience. My grandparents had an anointing for patience. I could break things around their house, and, you know, and nothing mattered. You know, it just, nothing, oh, that's all right. Your grandfather has many more of those, you know. It's like, I'll just break a few more then. Uh, that's an expression of love. Kindness is an expression of love. Compassion, getting up into your world and just listening. It's an expression of love rewarding you for things that you've done. It's an expression of love, a gift out of nowhere. It's an expression of love. Don't we love to be loved? Discipline. It's an expression of love. Reproof. It's an expression of love. Right? What category are we putting these things in? And according to God, he is loving us in these moments. But, you know, it doesn't feel like love if you got the wrong definition for love. If I got the right definition for love, I can celebrate the fact that God is loving me in Psalm 38. God's at work in my life, accomplishing good so that I might share in his holiness. What a great gift. Right, now, now, let me define these two words. Discipline, the word pedia, it's from which we get the word pedagogy from. It has to do with teaching. This form of activity in God is, is kind of a teaching training thing. It denotes the training of a child, including instruction, hence discipline, correction, and chastening. Discipline carries with it a, 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 an emphasis on teaching and training, right? It's a training dimension. Now, it can be associated with something that we've done wrong, but it doesn't have to be, and quite often it's not, right? Right now, the New Orleans Saints are in training camp. What? Why are they in training camp? It's because of the lousy season they had last year. They're being punished for it, right? They're being disciplined because of last year. <laughs> they won the Super Bowl last year. They could not have succeeded any more than they did last year. It's good to get an amen from some of you guys. I know the theology didn't matter, but that's really important. <laughs> Because of what they did last year? No, because of what they're called to do this year. They're being taught plays, technique. They're out there in the heat. They're conditioning their bodies. They're weightlifting. They're going through practice patterns over and over and over and over and over and over again. Why? Because there's a game day coming. There's an event on the calendar up here that they need to get ready for. That's discipline. When God disciplines us, it's because he knows game day is coming. Right, right, some of you guys need the discipline of God to be able to have that job over there. 
God needs to come into your life and mess with your world and make you very uncomfortable and twist you like a pretzel so that one day you got the character in you to answer his call to be in that job or to answer his call to be in that marriage or to answer his call to serve in the church a certain way. And God started that way back here. And you know, it probably sounded like some version of Psalm 38. Whatever God's doing to me, oh, it's killing me, killing me. God, you're killing me. God, where are you? Uh, it doesn't sound like, okay, and just an official notice came in the mail, came in an orange envelope this time, and God is notifying me that game day for a job is one and a half years away. I need to begin this training and discipline regimen right now today in these areas of my life. It doesn't come that way. It shows up in your life in the form of living. Next thing you know, you feel miserable, freaked out, panicked, afraid, like God's gone. And if in that moment you don't hold on to the fact that, no, 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 I remember, I remember, God has made a covenant with me. His love will never depart from me. God is doing this in my life for something. All right, now let me bring that other word in because that other word's got some baggage with it. Reproof. That word means to shame. Disgrace, but only in the classic Greek. In the New Testament, it means to convict, to prove one in the wrong and thus to shame him. It's kind of strong, huh? To prove one in the wrong. Okay, well, I'm, I'm guessing that means that I did something wrong. Am I reading anything into the verse here? See, this is, this is God's activity that comes to me. Unlike discipline, this is God's activity that comes to me when I need to be corrected. I need to move from here to here because this is wrong. It's not just about I need to be prepared one day for something. It's about you are doing the wrong thing. And God's reproof first comes to convince me that I am doing the wrong thing. If you don't have a solid theology of how the love of God functions in your life and you get God up in your grill telling you, you are wrong. And it may be that there are things in your life that God just needs to say, you know, you're, you're wrong about that. I mean, you know, there's other things in your life that God comes very noisily into your face. Right? I mean, Nathan's little trick on David was not a cute moment. When he turns and says, you are the man. It was God trying to pull David into the shame of what he had done. David, do you see what you have done? Apparently not, because it's been a while since he did it, and he's going on. Life's going on. David's committed murder and adultery, and this woman's pregnant. He takes him as his wife, and he's just going to go on. He's not dealing with this. And when Nathan comes, Nathan brings a sense of shame with him. Now, isn't this awkward? Right, right now, some of you guys, theologically, you're getting twisted in the wind, aren't you? Well, wait a minute. How can God love me and make me feel ashamed? I mean, that bad psychological word, you know? Aren't we supposed to be trying to escape shame? And Listen, there's an element in the Bible that when we come in contact with sin, it should cause us to put our hand over our mouth and be appalled by it. Be ashamed of it. And at the very same time, no, the love of God hasn't changed an ounce for me. That's the mind-blowing thing about a God who is Kadash. Now, you might not get that from me. If I get around something that you did that really 
really got me all fired up. What you might get is my irritation. That might be all you taste. And then my back. And you might have to determine, well, hey, is that dude going to stay in my life? Because he don't look like he is. And I'm a human being, and it may be that I'm not. But I'm not God. So when he interacts with these issues, he does it quite differently. Reproof has a little bit different dynamic to it. Now, let me clarify very clearly, very importantly, what neither of these words are. Neither of these words, discipline or reproof, are punishment. Neither of these activities in God are punishment. Punishment is different than discipline. I know we use this word as parents in a real sloppy way, but theologically you need to stop being a parent for a moment. If your child does something, you're going to be punished for that. Okay, well, you don't mean what God means when he talks about punishment. Right? I think I put this in your outline. Punishment is about payment for sin. Discipline is not about payment. Reproof is not about payment. Punishment is about payment for sin. Punishment is about absorbing the holy wrath of God. Punishment is about satisfying the demands of God's righteousness and justice. The wages of sin is death. That's the penalty of sin. Punishment is about that penalty getting paid. Discipline is not about that. Reproof is not about that. When God corrects you, he is not asking you to pay for anything. When God disciplines you, God's not exacting payment from you. When God punishes sin, he's looking for payment. Now here's why these two words that Hebrews tells us are an expression of the love of God are not punishment. Here's why. Because Christ bore our punishment fully so that it could be fully forgiven and we could be fully and eternally restored to God. What Christ did fully dealt with the payment for sin. There is no other means of transaction with God that anybody could ever use. There's no currency that God takes from any man. This idea that you and I are going to try and work our way back into the good graces of God. Do you you understand? You don't have the ability to do that. There's only one who ever had the ability to do that. And he did it. Now listen carefully to these words. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is a description of Christ in his work of sacrifice on the cross. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Now, before we keep reading here, let me just ask you, of the 8,468,224 sins that you've committed and will commit in your whole life, how many of them were laid on Christ? All of them. Every one of them. It was a complete deal. 
that God dealt with every sin. So no matter what it is that you're about to do, no matter how terrible it is to you, your response to sinning can never be to crawl back into the good graces of God. Because you don't have the ability to ever get there by anything you do. Whatever those sins are, he laid them on his son, all of them at the cross. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Right, The wages of sin is death. This is the payment of the penalty for our sins. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Right, now look at these next two verses carefully. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Right? You understand? We're sinners. We're enemies of God. We don't love God. So God doesn't come to us seeking to extract love for himself from us. Because there's nothing there. It's an empty hole. He can mine that thing all he wants. He doesn't show up in your life in order to extract your love. He shows up in your life in order to express his own. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified. Right now. Right now. Not one day. We're not crossing our fingers. We're not hoping that when we get to the end of our life, we're not hoping that we are going to lead a good enough life that, that one day, you know, maybe I can straighten things out between now and the end of my life. Boy, I've got a horrendous start. But, you know, I'm improving and I'm doing better. Right? If you're here today and I were to ask you this question, tell me right now, if you died right now, would you go to heaven? Okay, if you say anything that sounds like I hope so, now, now listen, I know that was some of your answer. I, well, I'm, I, I hope so. I, I think so. Well, the only thing that could cause you to respond to that is to focus on your contribution and to hope that it's enough. But what if it's just a little bitty contribution? Well, you still got a little bitty problem with is it enough, <laughs> right? Between now and the end of your life and you hope that you kind of did some bad, good things, overcome all the bad things, right? This says we have now been justified. That's a completed past tense verb. That means it's already done. It's already accomplished and we right now live in the good of it. There's no jury awaiting. There's no trial of our lives awaiting. We right now are justified, accepted by God. God has received us as sons. It's been done and it's complete. How did that happen? We have now been justified by his blood. By his blood. Remember a moment ago I talked about the currency of justification? This is the only payment that God accepts. This is it. You can't pay him with a smile. You can't pay him with good deeds. You can't pay him with loving people. You can't pay him with giving your money away to all kinds of folks. You can't pay God with that. The only thing that justifies a man before God is perfect blood. 
having been given up. And you and I don't have that. You don't have it to offer. So how would you crawl back into the good graces of God? If you mess up, how are you going to crawl back into the good graces of God? Listen, you are either in the good graces of God or you are not in the good graces of God. And you don't have any ability to do any crawling. We right now have been justified by his blood. The only words the Bible associates with justification is that, the blood of Christ. Because that's how we receive forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there is no forgiveness. Because the wages of sin is death and the life is in the blood. So when you shed the blood, you shed the life and something dies. And the penalty is paid. So Christ, exactly what he did on the cross, he sheds his blood, his perfect blood, his God blood, that could pay the penalty for all of mankind who would believe in him. He's paid that. So we are justified by him. And we are saved, this verse goes on, by him from the wrath of God. Right? God, God is furious about sin. I'm going to get back to this in just a second because I think sometimes we think, well, if I'm a Christian, God feels one way about sin. But if I'm not, then God feels another way about sin. God is, remember, can we go back to this series and, and just remember, we've got to hold on to all that God is. We can't decide that we want to grab one aspect of God. God is righteous. He is just. He is perfect. When he comes in contact with imperfection, whether it's your imperfection or somebody else's, the response of God is the wrath of God. I hope that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. I'll rescue you from it in just a second. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. This is an interesting verse. It's a great verse. For by a single offering, he he has perfected. Right? Is that past tense? Already done? By a single offering, what offering was that? What's the verse we just described? It's the blood of Christ. By that blood of Christ, that single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being, and that's a present verb, those who are being, what? Sanctified. Sanctified is the word for holy. Didn't God say that I discipline you that you might share in my holiness? Isn't that the agenda of God? Isn't that why you feel God nudging you? Are you feeling God nudge you because he wants you to get your butt moving so you can get justified? You got work to do for me to be okay with you. Come on, you better get moving. That's not why you feel God nudge and push on you. You feel him nudge and push on you so that we might share in his holiness. So God's love comes to you. But listen, if you're not going to let God's love make you uncomfortable, if you're going to determine that God's love can only come to me in a way that's gift-giving, he's Uncle Fred, you know, that's how God loves me. If God never gets to love you like a parent... God never gets to get up in your business and say, that's wrong. And you can't receive that as love. Well, then you have shut off an aspect of the love of God in your life. And you're going to need it when you get to Psalm 38. And your life feels like God is shooting arrows at me. What the heck is going on? He's loving you. That's what's going on. He's correcting your life. Don't despise that. Embrace it. Receive discipline. It's a good thing. The result is right now it's going to feel painful, but later on you're going to share in the character and holiness of God. You're going to become a partaker of the divine nature in a greater way. God's at work doing that. That's why he's nudging you. He's got an agenda in his love. 
when you look at that verse above where it says the wrath of God, let me, let me poke on this for a second, then I'm going to stop. That, that wrath is passionate punishment. It's not discipline. It's passionate punishment is the wrath of God, right? Now, question in your outline there. Is God dispassionate about your sin, about your sin? Because he loves you. No. God's response to sin is righteousness and justice, opposing wrath. However, that passion is never directed at you because it was fully directed at his son. All right, let me close with this thought from Psalm 89. Verse 28, this is a psalm speaking of David and of God's steadfast love toward him. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Now listen. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. You do realize there was never a sin committed by anybody who's ever existed that will not be punished. There's, there's no slush fund somewhere where God's just kind of slaw, you know, stashing sins on the side that no one's going to ever have to deal with. Hell is either going to be filled with people paying forever to absorb the wrath of God against their sin, or it got absorbed in a moment on the cross by the infinite God who received it. Every sin, yours and mine. So do you, do you understand? It's not as though, well, because I'm a Christian and God loves me, he doesn't feel the same way about my sin as the guy over there who rejects him and is God's enemy. No, that, you just turn God into an inconsistent character. Do you understand? You can't do that to God. God opposes and hates sin always. Always. And in this passage right here, you have the covenant love of God that will never change, and you have the punishment of God right in the same passage. He goes on. He will punish their iniquity with, with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. See, here on the one hand, God is saying, my, my steadfast love will not be removed, and I will punish sin. Now, let me just illustrate this, and this is a hard thing to illustrate. It's the best I can come up with. Here comes God flowing toward our lives. God wants relationship with man. And when you and I get saved, something happens with Christ. This, this person of God comes to us. And remember, the person of God is not just the parts of God that we like. It's all of God. 
So here comes this river of who God is. And it does contain his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his compassion and his goodness. And it also contains his righteousness and his wrath. All that's contained. And it's as though here comes this river unto us. If someone doesn't stand in this river and do some kind of diverting here, you and I are going to get absorbed in that. And included in that is going to be the wrath of God. But what Christ does at the cross, it's like he, he jams this wedge into the river of God. And he stands on one side and all the, the wrath, the punishment, and the fury of God flow to him. And diverted toward us is the love and the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. Listen, it's not as though God wasn't furious about your sin. It's just that you're never going to know what that fury felt like. You're never going to taste it. Because the Son of God took his cross and jammed it in the middle of that river and diverted from you and me the fury of God against our sin. This morning, I want, us, I want us to be able to receive the love of God personally in our lives. So I'm going to want you to just take a quick survey of your life. So let's stand up, stand up together. All right, now just shut in with the Lord, quiet with him. <clears throat> You know your life, and you know the season of your life. You know how things have been going. Do you feel as though God has been grieved by your life lately? If you're here and, and you're a child of God, you know that you know the Lord. And you sense displeasure. Things have been happening in your life. They've been unaddressed. And you, you sense that God is not pleased. This morning I want to ask you to receive. Receive the love of God. Receive reproof from God. Receive God convincing you, perhaps, to put your hand over your mouth and to feel a sense of being ashamed. Receive the discipline of God who is at work in your life right now preparing you, even with your resume of where you've been, preparing you to partake of his life and to share in his holiness. Receive correction from God. It's, it's a statement of his love and do what David did as he felt this weight and heaviness of God's love. He didn't define it that way, but that's what it was. Draw near to God this morning. Draw near to him. Press in to God. God's, this feeling, this awkwardness, it's, it's God loving you where you are. <clears throat> 
draw near. Call on him. He's not rejecting you. The love of God is chastening and correcting, but it is not rejecting you. God is not, nor could he, demand a payment from you this morning. Because you couldn't pay it if he asked it. And he would never ask it because his son has fully paid for your sin. Fully. Whatever it is that you're thinking of right now, the son of God's already paid the penalty for it. So whatever you're feeling, it's not God trying to exact payment. It may be God correcting you in his love. It may be God having a serious parental talk with you about your future and about why this needs to change. So if you're here this morning, I want to make room for you to receive from God. And God's hand <clears throat> feels like this. It's discipline. It's correction. I want you to come receive the love of God. I want you to come pray. I want you to come get with God right now. I want you to get out from where you are. Go ahead and come out. And come just kneel with God. Come and sit with him. Come and, come and adjust what you've been thinking about this season of your life. Come and fix whether or not you feel like this is love or not on God's part to interact with you this way. I think David's given us a very sympathetic sense that this may feel like arrows are piercing me. My body is under the weight. This just won't go away. I can't shake this. Listen, it is the discipline and correction of the God who loves you. He's loving you right now. And before we just take some time just to linger with the Lord, let me just ask for anybody here, maybe a few that are here, that if I, I, could, I could just have a personal conversation with you right now and I ask you, are you, are you right with God? Is your life right with God? Right now you're thinking, well, I, I think so. Why do you say that? Why do you think you're right with God? Think right now. Why do you think you're right with God? If right now what you're thinking of is you've been a pretty good person, you've gone to church, you know others who are worse than you, if you're thinking anything besides the blood of Christ, then I can tell you this right now, and I can say it to you as soberly as I can, you are not right with God. If anything came to mind just now besides the blood of Christ paying for your sin, then you are not accepted by God because that's the only currency God takes, and if that's not what you're going to pay with, you're not right with God. But maybe you want to get right with God. You can do that this morning. You can do it by putting your faith and your hope and your life and your future and your eternal life and your relationship with God in the hands of Christ for him to pay with his blood to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into a relationship with God. Now, if you want to do that this morning and you haven't done that before in your life, just raise your hand. Let me see it real quick. Wave at me. Thank you. Anybody else? Wave so I can see you. Thank you. Anyone else? I got bad eyesight, so you may have to wave real good. Anyone else? 
I want to make sure this is the biggest thing you can ever do in your life. So this is, this is not worth mistaking anything about. So I'm going to ask you two guys. Frank, can I find you? Uh, this fellow in the blue shirt right here is going to walk where both of you guys can see him. He's walking around this way right here. Frank, if you just come right back into the middle of this aisle right here, both of these guys can find you. And could, could he just have a word with you for a moment and just have a prayer with you for a moment? So Frank, just walk right around this way. They're both in the same row back this way. All right, for everybody else here, Frank, just go ahead. Just wave at Frank when he gets near you guys, if you don't mind. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but this is, this is worth it. Let's pray and let Matt close us in song. Lord, Lord, rich, rich verses come to us. God so loved the world. Your passion that we have seen in other passages as we've studied about your love, your declaration through prophets who spoke to a people who were wayward and away from you that I have loved you with an everlasting love. Lord, these guys here this morning are in a place where your activity in their life doesn't necessarily feel like love. Oh, but it is. It is a love that's fixing something that's been broken. It's a love that's removing things that are in the way of all of your good intentions. It's a love that wants them to be affected by their decisions and actions in a way that's sobering, maybe even ashamed. Lord, it's a love that has both arms outstretched and you looking into the future and saying, do you see that date on the calendar? I want you to experience that on that day. I want to prepare you. It's the God who loves you. My heart would be pained to see you miss that day in your life. I would be grieved if you fail to experience my goodness in this area of your life. Yes, I am disciplining you. I am reproving you. Because I love you. Lord, give us grace to receive that kind of love here in this place this morning. God, open our hearts and pour out your love, Lord.